Welcome to Manufacturing Talk Radio, your source for breaking news, business trends, and economic forecasts here and abroad that impact one-third of America's economy. And now your hosts, Lou Weiss and Tim Grady. And welcome to this episode of Manufacturing Talk Radio. My name is Tim Grady. I'm here with my co-host, Lou Weiss. And we're going to be talking with Dr. Chris Keel today as he gives us kind of the first month in recovery update for the credit managers index and the economy in general. So, Lou, this should be an interesting discussion to see how we look a month in and how we might look another month out. Well, before uh, Chris uh, joins us, I'm putting all my money up on the line. It's not, it's not good. Well, said, Mr. Keel, join us. I will. So, so you're going to put all your money on the line. All right, I, I understand. But you know, you realize that when people ask economists for advice on the market or any sort of investment tool, I always have to point out, and how many rich economists do you know? Um, <laughs> so, you know, we're, we're if we knew anything about this, we we would act on but of course we don't. The good news this month, and this is something I think that is is more than a little significant, and, and I won't go into excruciating detail about why credit managers are brilliant, but I will point out one thing about that profession. They tend to think in the future, and when you think about the kind of decisions that a credit manager makes, they really don't care what's happening with the client they're working with that day or that month because they're thinking about how that client will behave when that client owes the money. So the credit manager is going to give you 90-day terms or 120-day terms or 180-day terms. Who knows? They're giving you time to pay for that machine or that inventory that they bought. So they're looking at you going, good for you. I'm so glad your business is doing well today. How are you going to look when you owe me? So they look down the road. They're looking three, four, or five months. So when their data comes out, it tends to be future-oriented. They're looking already at the end of summer, the beginning of fall, the beginning of fourth quarter. So when we look at the credit manager's index, that came out this month, you really have to sort of think in your head, they're looking at August, September, October, even later. For the last couple of months, we saw really bad numbers, and we've been through this on the show. I mean, April and and you know, March were just horrific. We saw numbers we'd really never seen before, and people who are familiar with the indices know that we look at the same kind of diffusion index that the purchasing managers index uses. So anything over 50 is good news. Anything under 50 is bad news. We had numbers in the 20s and 30s, but all of them now are in the 50s. We're back above that 50 line. We're back in growth territory and not by a squeaking margin. We're up in the mid 50s and this was the case with what we refer to as the favorable factors. Favorables from the standpoint of a credit manager, there are four of them. One is sales. The second one is applications for credit. The third is dollar collections. And the fourth is amount of credit extended. 
all four of those now are in the mid-50s. What that indicates is that, again, looking forward, they're expecting better sales numbers. They're expecting more applications for credit, more people willing to buy things. They're looking at more collections so they'll actually get paid. And they're looking at being able to lend, essentially, or offer credit at a greater extent. So it's not like we're completely out of the woods. It's important to remember that these are month-over-month comparisons. But the data for this month was compared to last month where the numbers had improved at least into the 40s. And so we're progressing in the right direction. doesn't mean that something can't go wrong later, but the expectation now is that things are on the uptick, at least as far as, as the large clients that they deal with. And remember that the credit managers index is kind of heavy in terms of our participation in sectors like automotive, um, agricultural manufacturing, the medical manufacturing sector. We have pretty decent representation in retail. Um, We have pretty good representation in construction. A little bit weak on, on sort of the professional services type things because they're not generally organizations that seek credit. But those that are inventory buyers or those that are machine tool buyers or people who need to buy equipment that is going to be paid for in a period of time, those are represented pretty well in the index. Well, that was uh, quite a uh, uh, stand-up telling us what's going on and what's going to happen or not happen, uh, Chris. Um, I, I think that we have some uh, potential conflict, though, um, because depending upon whose story or whose uh, uh, excuses you're listening to, there's slightly different uh, tales. And, uh, uh, for example, the ISM, uh, Institute of Supply Management, uh, indicated in their report, even though their report both manufacturing and non-manufacturing this past month was very good. Um, The information that uh, fed that report was uh, a little uh, late, a little backward, and, uh, you know, maybe next month it's not going to look quite so cheery. Where are you at on that? Well, as I mentioned before, we're future-oriented. They're past-oriented. You know, the ISM looks backwards. It looks at what has happened, and the credit manager's index, just because of the nature of the business, looks forward. So what we're asserting, and over the years we've noticed that the CMI, to a degree, predicts the PMI, and and it's really just because of the nature of the professions. The purchasing manager basically is going to do what they do after the credit manager has done what they do. Um, So, I mean, everyone in business now knows the cycle, is that you go to make a purchase and you're going to buy a new machine or you're lining up the inventory. The salesman is all excited and they're like, wow, I've just landed a big deal. And there sits the credit manager with the glasses half down their nose and scowling at you from behind the desk going, it's not a sale until we're paid. So they are always the ones that are kind of holding the keys 
to the whole transaction, saying, if I don't give you credit, well, you're not going to be able to buy this machine, can you? Um, if I don't give you credit, you can't buy that inventory. So they're a little bit of a, of a gatekeeper in terms of how the purchasing then turns out. And right now, they're anticipating that things will get better. Now, there's an awful lot of assumptions that go into that, and we've been dealing with this all year. Uh, we are assuming that the lockdown will continue to be unleashed, which we're now not so sure of. We're seeing states that are reinstituting lockdowns. We have states that are slowing the process down. So far, those have not really affected manufacturing directly, but they certainly are indirectly. We're assuming that consumers come back, and the consumers have been. However, they're expressing a lot of hesitation, and you're seeing consumers that were excited at first but are now starting to, to get nervous because they don't they don't quite know where they're going to be when it comes to COVID down the line. So we've been dealing with this uncertainty pretty much all year, and, and it's certainly not going to go away. The big conversation that continues to rage is those who are completely focused on public health and those that are focused on the economy as if we were in a one or the other situation, which, of course, we're not. We have to somehow deal with the epidemic and the economy. You know, we don't have the luxury of saying, I mean, I heard one the other day saying, what we need to do is shut the country down for a year. It's like, dude, I mean, I, what is wrong with you? I mean, it's like, I know, I know, if we all starve to death, then we won't have the disease. Yep, you're absolutely <laughs> right. Um, um, that's that's, that's, that's great statement. logic. It is. It is indeed. Um, it's like Lou so, and I were just know. talking about this an hour ago. You know, you, you can't shut the country down because the United States or any other country can't pay for everything for the next year. They're lucky if they right. pay for it for the next month. <laughs> exactly, you know. So, and then you have the counter argument where it's like, well, we should open everything up, and nobody should wear a mask, and everybody should go about their business. Like, well, you can't do that either. Um, you know, you're going to have to figure out a way to manage right down the middle, and that's a very uncomfortable place for a public policy person to be in. I mean, they they don't want to have to make that trade off decision, and. And I don't blame them, but, you know, it's kind of like you knew the job was dangerous when you took it, Fred. So, um, you know, that's that's kind of what what comes. Well, I thought I heard a guy in D.C. by the name of Donnie who said that you can do all the things that you want to do and no problem. Yeah, well, you know. Um, I just threw that, that in that, your lap, buddy. Yeah, that that buddy is is. Let's just say that there are certain people in D.C. who now have no credibility whatsoever on anything, um, and he's not alone. I mean, we're we're running into, in a way, we've become similar to Europe in very significant sense. Europe is trying to figure out a policy when they have forty four countries. 
And each of these countries has their own interpretation. You know, the Swedes are going one way, the Danes are going another. We have exactly the same problem. We're trying to figure out what to do with 50 states all going in their own direction. And, and it's, it's, it's hurting our ability to respond because there is no national policy. It's not coming from the president. It's not coming from Congress. It's not coming from anywhere. And if you look at the data that's being released right now, some states are doing pretty good. Some states are doing absolutely miserably. Um, some states have, you know, double-digit deaths, and others have like 10. And it's like, well, one of the things I think we can take from this is the secret to surviving COVID-19 is to make most of your population leave. Montana is looking pretty good. Um, it's like, well, you know. <laughs> Social isolation is easy here. Your nearest neighbor is 150 miles away. <laughs> so. That's right. <laughs> you know, or it's a cat which can't spread the disease. Right, Chris, right. Uh, we, we've gone out of our way over the years of not talking politics. Uh, I, I'm going to sort of break away from that a little bit. Uh, there, there was an issue that came up uh, yesterday where uh, you know, the universities throughout the United States are now talking about, you know, what what are we going to do? What the F are we going to do? And so Trump comes up with a new idea. He's going to deport all of foreign students who um, are not taking courses one-on-one. Mm-hmm. He's deporting them because they're doing them online. What does that freaking mean? You know, I know we have tried to steer clear of politics, and I know that there are people that will take exception to to some of these opinions. But I've kind of reached the point that you have. It it is beyond absurd. It is dangerously idiotic at this stage because it's not in our long-term interest. It's not in our short-term interest and it's a distraction. You know, it's like we have some very serious issues to deal with. We really ought to deal with those making gestures like this. I don't know who within his so-called base would find this reassuring, but one of the strengths of the United States for two centuries has been that we attract the best and the brightest from all over the world. And that is what has, now we're deporting them. Now we're making this a place nobody wants to go to. And, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't take very long to go down the list of who has started businesses here, who runs businesses here, who has been behind innovation here, there are people that are hailing from other countries and they're here because they got educated here and they liked being here. I mean, just from a very personal point of view and, and, but a lot of people have a similar experience and I don't mean to go off on, on personal tangents, but two or three years ago, I went through cancer. I went through throat cancer. It was a very scary moment um, for somebody who makes their living talking this was not something that I was relishing. Every single one of my doctors, surgeons, specialists were foreign born. 
the man who did the surgery to give me a tracheotomy was from East Africa. My cancer specialist was from India. My heart doctor was from Pakistan. I mean, it goes on and on and on. I would not be alive today or speaking to you on the phone were it not for the fact that we welcome people in from other countries. And and it's now is not the time to behave this way. And it's it's just it's irresponsible and it and it's it's ludicrous. And that's and that's I know that's political, but I you know it gets personal Chris, after uh, a while. Chris, it's almost not even political anymore. It's called humanitarian. Right. And right. Uh, we have a humanitarian issue in this country. And, uh, you know, I'm glad that you survived your uh, ordeal. Uh, And there's many more like it going on in the country today. But to start deporting the talent, when we have a Mm -hmm. skill gap problem, we have a retiree problem, we have a lower birth rate problem, we have, you know, I could go on and on and on. And this guy is shipping them all out of the country. Right. And it's, and it's and to what purpose? I mean, that's the other, the other underlying concern is that if you're trying to get rid of people who might be carriers of COVID-19, well, you know, one must look in the mirror, Mr. President, and say, well, the majority of people that are getting this are over 70 and overweight. Um, you know, would you like to go into exile someplace um, and take the risk with you? I just, yeah, I know it's very difficult to, to maintain objectivity at this stage. And it's something that's affecting countries all over the world. I mean, the Brazilian president now is having to confront the fact that after telling people for several months that COVID-19 is all in your head and that you should just man up and deal with it, he now has COVID-19. And so all of a sudden, it's an, it's an issue now in Brazil, by God. I mean, Bolsonaro got it. <laughs> right. So, you know, wow, we better do something. Really? Um, President of Burundi did the same thing. This doesn't exist. It only affects. Then he died. Um, and all of a sudden, gee, maybe, maybe there was more to this. <laughs> so. Yeah, maybe there's some real issue here with health and uh, virus and uh, uh, COVID-19 and 20. Uh, You know, I spoke to somebody a couple of days ago, and they said, what does COVID-19 mean? I said, which part don't you get? He said, the 19. I said, how about 2019? Exactly. Must have been under 30. And and I, I think it's... Yeah, it's I, in getting it back to to economic issues. You know, the the, the critical thing about dealing with COVID nineteen is that this is not the first viral outbreak we've dealt with. We've dealt with one almost annually. Um, it's not even the deadliest. You know, the highest fatality rates have been with things like MERS and SARS and avian flu and Ebola and Marburg. We get these all the time, and the issue now is that knowing that we're going to be dealing with this and who knows what other viral attacks, we need to be better prepared. And it's one of the – 
it's one of the hallmarks of anybody that runs a business is that you prepare for contingencies. Every senior level manager, every owner, every president I've ever met spends a good deal of their time preparing for emergencies. You know, what do I do when this happens? What do I do when that happens? That's why I get paid the big bucks. And now we're going to have to try to do that as a nation and say, what can we do the next time this comes up? You know, is there, should we invest more in public health? Should we be better at monitoring this stuff? I mean, beyond the risk of sending international students home, withdrawing from the World Health Organization, why? I mean, the assessment was that that they didn't warn us. Yeah, they did. They warned everyone last October. It's not their fault that nobody listened. You know, so it's a shoot the messenger logic. And it's like, no, if anything, we should be looking. At one point, it was identified that we had a whopping 100 people in the CDC whose job was to track global viruses. I looked it up. There are twice as many people maintaining Royal Stadium in Kansas City then we're searching for viral attacks globally. So, you know, <laughs> it's like, given well, the fact that we're not even playing baseball right now, why can't we, you know, do a better job of tracking viruses? Well, Chris, you know, you're, you're, you're one of our, you're one of our guys. I mean, you, aside from uh, playing with numbers and coming up with certain, declu- the certain uh, conclusions <laughs> about what numbers mean, you come up with the um, uh, the intuition of what's going on, what's going to happen, and you know you're 110 percent right in everything you just said. And uh, <laughs> unfortunately, throwing my two cents into the prediction is that we're not done with this for a long time. Right, we're not, and and we weren't done with it before, and you know we're not done with it going forward because it in many respects what's been very weird about COVID-19 and one of the things I keep emphasizing in the webinars that I do is that it's a bizarrely benign infection compared to things we've dealt with in the past. Many of the viral infections we've had before are deadlier and they work faster, which in effect made them easier to deal with because you got it, you knew you had it right away You were in trouble right away. There was no doubt in anybody's mind that you needed to be isolated and dealt with. We have a virus now where 65% of the people that get it don't know they have it, so they become carriers with no desire to become a carrier. We know that it's a disease that 97% of the people get a mild version, so they don't require hospitalization but it spreads like wildfire. So you've got people inadvertently spreading it to a population that is mostly only going to get mildly sick, but it leaves that 3% extremely vulnerable. And 3% of 340 million Americans is a lot of people. So you're looking at it like, well, on the one hand, you know, it's not too bad. On the other hand, if you're in that 3%, you're desperately worried, and then you start extrapolating that to the world as a whole. That's one of the factors now is is consumer concern, because even though the lockdown is lifting, 
consumers now are basically saying, yeah, well, that's great, but I'm still not going to go back to the restaurant. And I, you know, I don't know what to believe. Every 20 minutes I'm hearing a different story. So, you know, I'm just going to keep ordering things from Amazon and, you know, binge watch on Netflix and hope it all goes away. And the bottom line is it's not going away that fast. And I I appreciate your commentary on where you think we are at and uh, all the issues that's related to that. Uh, it's, it's an unfortunate situation that we're in right now. And uh, uh, frankly, uh, I don't see this uh, coming to any end conclusion until perhaps after November. And I'll let you go figure it, yeah, that out. Yeah, and, and, it's, and it's partly, I think it's going to reach some kind of a head because we look at this as a global problem as well as our own. So, it's not just our leaders that are at risk here. It's everybody else's. But I think that you're looking for a resolution of sorts once there is some kind of really kind of a dual response. There has to be an effective treatment, which apparently we're getting closer to, and there has to be a vaccine. And we're apparently getting a little closer to that. But closer mm-hmm. does not mean immediate. You know, This is months away. I think we'll probably hit the treatment part sooner than we hit the vaccine because now we're learning that, like many of these diseases, it goes through phases. So what is you're doing for somebody in the initial part that is kind of dealing with uh, lung issues and the breathing issues, then this thing triggers your autoimmune system, and that's a whole different challenge. And so it becomes using a combination of drugs. I'm not an epidemiologist or a doctor. Um, that's that's not what my doctor means. All I can do is re- kind of talk about how this is playing out economically. Every country is coming to grips with what this means for their economy. If there's good news on the horizon, it is that countries that initially were dealing with this are seeing a little bit more secure economic recovery. China, Japan, Korea, uh, Vietnam, they're seeing progress. And that's a good sign. It would indicate that at some point the economy does rebound when there's an opportunity for it to kind of throw off some of the restrictions and people start to resume their lives. So we can only look and hope that that then happens in Europe and then eventually happens here But at the same time, we know that it's getting worse in places like Latin America and Africa and the Middle East. You know, uh, Chris, I used to think you were our humorist on our show. (laughs) I'm trying. (laughs) I'm trying. (laughs) Tonight, you're very trying. And, uh, you know, we clearly have a problem, and you certainly have a grip on what's going on. Uh, So we really appreciate your uh, voicing your uh, opinions and your expertise and so on uh, as to what's coming. I don't see an end to your story anytime soon, but uh, it will happen one way or another. Well, yep. and, and I think where we where we have to find our, our humor is in in kind of, of taking a, a, a jaundiced approach. Even before talking with Tim, it was like, 
my favorite meme that's come out now, and there's been lots of these, is is one that that features a cat, and it's like cats study are not capable of infecting people with COVID-19, but if they could, they would. And <laughs> that's the important important thing to remember about our cats. <laughs> well, I look to manufacturing to help solve this, as I, uh, as you will see when our next issue of uh, Manufacturing Outlook comes out. Uh, manufacturing really is uh, focused anew on viruses, uh, particularly the biopharmaceutical folks who, you know, have been trying to find a cure for the common cold for 50 years. Right, exactly. Have now got, uh, they now have a real mission to figure out how to kill a virus like Louis Pasteur and his wife figured out how to kill a bacteria. Right, exactly. And I think beyond that, manufacturing has shown that it is a, a more resilient sector than many because you have all kinds of challenges when it comes to the consumer sector. You know, how do you consume and maintain all of these protocols? And as we have become more isolated and more kind of dependent on our own devices, the manufacturing sector has been stepping up. And I think that even things that are large manufacturing purchase, take the auto industry, for example. There's a recovery underway, and part of the rationale is individuals who are saying, look, I can't do a lot of the things I used to be able to do. I can take a drive. I can, you know, go to, I have half a dozen friends who are saying, well, normally I go to Disney World or whatever. I'm just going to drive around and tour and go look at the country, and all of a sudden it's like, hmm, if I'm going to do that, I need a new car. And so maybe we go back to, I'm old enough to remember that that was entertainment. You went for a drive. You got in the car yeah, and right. you drove around. And, still and, yep, and I think that that may start, you know, you're in your car, you're in your own little bubble, and, you know, you keep people out of it beginning to see a response in terms of, of people's hobbies. I mean, I know a bunch of people who are now, you know, turning their garage into that shop they always wanted. Well, that's, that's <laughs> thanks to manufacturing. That's right. So uh, everyone stay tuned for the developments in manufacturing. And I'm fascinated to watch two a two-pronged approach. One is the antibody approach, and the other is a vaccine mm-hmm. approach. Yep. One, if not both of those, are going to win. No, I agree. And and this is not this is not something that is impossible to contend with. You know, there are, like I said, our major concern was that it spread so fast and that it spread so sneakily. You know, everything we've dealt with in the past, all the different flus and avian flu and all that, people immediately knew they were sick. So quarantining somebody was not hard. You knew right away that you were in trouble. When you have people that are told, oh, yeah, you've had COVID-19 for five months. What? Yeah, <laughs> you know, and it's like, but, so who who have you spoken to in the last five months? I live Nobody. in New York, man. I, I, you know, was I supposed to get everybody's name on the subway? Well, yeah, you know, just <laughs> jot it down, get their name and address and how to get in touch with them and, you know, how long you spent with them and, 
you know, practical back in the good old days when you just got the flu, people were, they would avoid you anyway. It's like, you, the hacking, coughing, sneezing person, go away. (laughs) 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 Well, Chris, kind of wrap this up for us. What do you think July is going to look like when the numbers come out? You know, I think it's still going to be pretty solid because the kind of stuff that we're seeing right now what we're keeping an eye on are the non-favorables. These are the ones that have been kind of delayed because the non-favorable stuff is bankruptcies and accounts out for collection and slow pays, all the things that would indicate that some of the early credit receivers were in trouble. Those have remained fairly stable. It would not surprise me if those went down a little bit because we're starting to see some of the bankruptcies and Right now, we know that about 145,000 small businesses have gone out of business permanently. But I think the favorables will still be trending in a positive direction. So it'll be a little bit of a tug of war between the future-looking favorables and the things that are looking at the damage that's already been done. So those are some staggering numbers. We knew that certainly some of the small businesses would struggle. I see Brooks Brothers just filed for bankruptcy. So mm-hmm. even some of the larger retailers uh, are going to struggle. So we'll just have yeah, to see I mean, how this wraps up. Exactly, because you look at the people in the menswear business, they're like, oh, my God, we are never going to sell another tie as long as we live. <laughs> um, you know, yeah, right. it, it's just... The only people I know that are that are still wearing a tie, and it cracks me up because I do all these Zooms and webinars and things, the only people besides me that are wearing a tie are other economists. So we are the last bastion you, of neckwear and been, left. And you've been so wrong about so many things for so long, you could be <laughs> wrong about the tie. I know, I know. And if you wish, if you wish, Mr. Keel, I'll be happy to send you my tie rack that's also filled with ties. Yeah, Uh, Every every conceivable concocting, uh, and I'm willing to send them to you. I don't wear ties anymore. Well, that that has always been my, my, whenever I would go on a trip, you know, that was my standard take-home souvenir as a tie. So I have an awful right. lot of them. Um, I even have cufflinks. I don't know what the hell I'm going to do with those either. Um, so we'll, we'll see. Well, we'll see. Yeah. Thanks for sharing with us. And uh, we appreciate you being on the show again, Chris. Thank you so Thanks, much. Thanks, guys. We'll talk to you Thanks. later. Thanks a lot, Chris. Bye. You've been terrific as usual. Thank you. Thanks. And we've been talking with Dr. Chris Keel, who is the economist with Armada Corporate Intelligence. He also does work with the Fabricators and Manufacturers Association International and the Forging Industry Association and so many more. Lou, I can't count anymore. You know, I I really love Chris. He's been with us now for a number of years. But I, I don't know if all of our listeners know what Ph.D. means. So what do you, oh, what do you you're going to drop that out of us. <laughs> I'm going to I'm going to drop that on our audience. Sorry. So here it is. PhD files higher and deeper. There you go, folks. That's what PhD oh. means. 
<laughs> and with that, I want to encourage all of our listeners to go to jacketmediaco.com where you'll find all of the shows here on Manufacturing Talk Radio. is the lead show. You'll find the Wham! podcast, Where's Willie? Manufacturing Matters with Cliff Waldman, Hazard Girls, and Full Time with Amy Nicholas. And as always, thank you for listening to this episode of Manufacturing Talk Radio. Thanks for joining us on Manufacturing Talk Radio. You can hear our next broadcast each Tuesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time at mfgtalkradio.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.